one way of doing it is to say, this is what I have, do you want it or not? But the way that I've designed it, it's been how do we collaborate to make a piece that specifically and uniquely fits your needs? My name is Louise Newsom, entrepreneur and host of The Makers, where we tell the stories of how everyday creatives turn their passion into a sustainable business. On this episode, you'll meet Connor McGinn, founder of Makers Central, based in Tarrytown, New York, a community workspace for artisanal makers who have learned and honed their craft either on their own, at school, or one of the numerous and invaluable teaching studios out there, and took the leap and turned that craft into an actual business. Connor is an example of that, owner of Connor McGinn Studios, a handcrafted ceramics company producing ceramics that are thoughtfully designed for everyday use. During this episode, you will hear Connor tell the turbulent but engaging story of dealing with a pandemic, a challenging order from one of the top restaurateurs in the world, no staff, and some serious mishaps along the way. We're doing social distancing yeah. with a garage door open yeah. at Maker Central New York. Got some airflow. With some Cooper's Daughter bourbon. We wouldn't be right without it. That's right. Well, it's look, we have to tell everybody that it is 7.30 p.m., so... Yeah. It's legal drinking hour. Yeah, definitely <laughs> just started. <laughs> so you were just explaining something to me, Connor, about what are these called little cones you were showing me inside the... So we were just looking at the kiln. The kiln, the that is the kiln. The gas kiln that we have hooked up. Is that your new one? Yes. Aha, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, that has we'll a story. get into that whole fiasco <laughs> later. But so we were just looking inside of the kiln. Um, Right now it's at 2,284 degrees. We're looking for it to get up to like 23, somewhere between 23 and 2,400 degrees. And this gets a little bit technical here, but it's, we want the pieces to be finished, which doesn't necessarily mean when the kiln reaches a certain temperature. If you think of uh, a chicken, right. you wanna cook a whole chicken up to 160 degrees. You can either do that by putting it in a smoker at 225 degrees, or you can do that by putting it into a fryer at 550 degrees or putting it into a, a, hot, a hot pan at 550 degrees. So the temperature of the thing that you're cooking it in doesn't necessarily determine when it's going to be done. So just because the kiln reaches the temperature that we think it should be done at doesn't mean that the pieces will be done. With a chicken, you can take a thermometer and stick that thermometer inside the chicken and say, oh, we're right about done. With the kiln, because it's at 2300 degrees, it's literally molten glass inside of there. We can't stick something into the piece. So what's really cool, this thing that, I mean, they've developed hundreds or thousands of years before this, um, probably more hundreds, but they have these little things called pyrometric cones. So I'm holding here in front of me this little pack um, of these four upright triangular um, spears that are stuck into a piece of clay and they're all parallel. And we put this inside of the kiln and there are two small, maybe two inch by two inch holes in the kiln, one in the top and one in the bottom that at any given time I can pull out a brick and look into the kiln and see what's going on with these cones. That's what you just showed me. Yeah. So these little cones, these little spears are each specifically formulated to melt at different points. 
So pieces are done based on both time and temperature. If I ramp the kiln up really quickly, it's gonna have to get to a higher temperature for the kiln to be, for the pieces to be finished. If I ramp it up really slowly, they're soaking in there for longer. So it could be done at a much lower temperature. So I need to be able to see inside of the kiln because any given kiln could be done between 2350 or 2300 and 2400. But say this kiln is done at 2350, if it's 10 degrees cooler or 10 degrees hotter, that could ruin the pieces. So when so, we looked in there, mm -hmm. what was going on? When we looked in there, these four cones were there. This first one had dropped down. It was fully bent over like this. Right. And these next two were starting to move. So not so ready. Not quite ready. But the bottom one, I have two of them in there so that I can tell if there's a temperature difference. So about a half hour ago, the bottom cones were folding faster and the top ones hadn't folded yet. Huh. So I had to, on the back, there's a, a damper, which is a little shelf that kind of cuts off the size of the chimney. So I had to push in the damper about a quarter of an inch to change the atmosphere inside of the kiln. So there was a little bit more pressure. So the heat would kind of linger up at the top a little bit more. And why these different colors? Cause you've got, I mean, just so I can give a visual. So there's four little like spears inside some, what is clay. this, a clay, right? And so it's like a neutral clay color. Then you've got pink, kind of a teal blue or, and then a gray. So, so why are they color coded? So I think they just do that. I think they just add a dye in there that'll burn off, but just so that if I have a bunch of different boxes of them, I don't confuse them. Because if I confused these cones, if they were all white and I accidentally put, these are, each one is different. This oh. is a cone nine, cone 10, cone 11, so, and cone 12. So basically it's going to, it's going to drop and droop. Yes. In, like it's got in to succession. go in, in succession. Yeah. Right. right, right, right. Yeah, which is why this finished one, you can see this bottom one has really melted and kind of formed to the clay underneath it. And the next one, the tip of it has touched and kind of bent up a little. The third one is just bent over and the fourth one is what we call the guard cone. And, and it's, it's like, leaning. don't let that fall. You don't let that fall, yeah. right. So it's just leaning slightly. It almost looks like, um, like a wing, like a bird's wing. Yeah. Like if you were to open it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got like the yeah, under kind of feathers here. Out. that are Yeah, and then the whatever. I don't know enough about wings, but it looks like that. So <laughs> I, have, I have hundreds and hundreds of these because each one is like a memento for each firing. I like them because it, it tells the story of what's going on. Yeah. Which I think is kind of the same with any of the other makers in here and myself. It's always been about, you know, we're making a product, but the reason why we're, I feel that the product is more valuable than something that you could get at Target. You know, I have a bowl here in my hand that is handmade. It serves the same exact function as a bowl you can get at Target. Yeah. But it costs three, four times as much. And the whole thing that we have to do is you're, you're telling a story about how it's made. So when somebody comes in here and sees this space and gets to hear these stories about these weird little cone packs and gets to see the process of it, it kind of imbibes the pieces with a bit more depth so that when you give this to somebody as a Christmas present, this big serving bowl, 
you're saying, oh, I went to this place and I got it from this guy and we went to this, this awesome maker space and somebody's using this press from 1930s and you know, it's, it, it has a bit more richness to it, I think. The Makers is brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Here we share the stories of individuals and businesses that make our communities. We believe in those who are committed to doing well by doing good, using their hands, minds and hearts to create a better place for us all and believe that a little sweat and a lot of sharing turns a community into a populace of prosperity. Trade and Prosper is a forum where those like-minded individuals meet to trade ideas, information, goods and services, as well as build long-lasting relationships that enable them to expand their reach locally and also globally. For more information on our organisation and for more podcast episodes, head over to tradeandprosper.com. Follow us on social media and join our Facebook group to connect with our growing community of creative entrepreneurs. Today, you know, we're recording you, but we, but I've been here several times. <laughs> and, we, you know, you're part of this Maker Central New York series that I'm doing on, on the podcast channel for Trade and Prosper. And so we talked when I was here to you and Stetson about why you opened this, because you're the founder of this space, but you're also the, a maker in this mm -hmm. space. A good portion of my work um, I do is for Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Um, and they're a phenomenal restaurant up the street in Pecanigo Hills, which is practically Tarrytown. So they're in our backyard. Um, and They are the godfathers of farm to table in New York State. Yeah. Well, they start, actually, their farm's in Massachusetts, right? Their original farm? They have a couple. Yeah, Blue Hill Farm is like outside of Great Barrington. And then um, they got linked up with uh, Stone Barns Agricultural Center and Dan Barber has the restaurant there and you know now they've been there for I don't know 10 years or so but they're you know they've taken over um, and he's just a complete visionary in that part of our food system you yeah, know that, that the restaurant is just a kind of side project to his desire to fix our food system which is um, but to be able to work for them is phenomenal and it's it's incredible to to have a client so luckily because they are so on top of their shit they called me up um pretty shortly after the shutdown and placed a couple of different orders not for plates for their normal restaurant but they were doing these uh um, boxes to go and uh philippe their operations manager who i normally deal with called me and he was like, hey, I'm using these shitty tin boxes is my best option for these flower vases. And I would rather support you and rather use local than order something from who knows where. Um, so I but started- might never get there. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, who knows right now right. or right then. Yeah. So I started making stuff for them for that. And then they pivoted to do this picnic dining. So I'm making samples for them of these kind of stackable plates that are almost like a bento box where the pl each plate fits exactly on the one below it and you can plate in it um, while they're stacked. So we're going through um, samples and testing and he asks me how long it's going to be for the next round of samples. And I tell him I could probably crush it down to like a week, which is really short. Normally it's like three to four weeks for anything, two weeks minimum. I found that I could skip the first firing if I just glazed pieces right away. And it, it, it's kind of a workaround where I could cut a few days off. So 
told him I could probably get them to you in about a week. So I said, how long for the whole order? He said, it depends on how big the order is. And uh, he was, well, we're opening in two weeks. And I was like, why the hell are we talking about samples still? Like, I got to start making this stuff. So, uh, you know, we put in the order and Philippe calls me and he's like, hey, don't be scared. And I'm like, oh, God, what's this going to be? <laughs> that I should be really scared. Yeah, I should be real scared of your telling me not to be scared. Uh, so it's 1,100 pieces. They need uh, oh about half of them in two weeks and the other half in three weeks. And again, me being an idiot and probably my lack of ability to understand time and what I can do in a given amount of time um, and desire to not let down a chef, especially this caliber. But, you know, the same thing with with Eric Bubba um, said, yes, I can do it. I'll figure it out. The thing is though, they're completely different style of plates than I normally make, and not just in design, but in production. So normally I take regular soft, malleable clay and either on the wheel or on a slab roller, make it into pieces and then fire it. These needed to be so paper thin because they were fitting 30 different pieces inside of a picnic basket so that the picnic basket could be delivered to the table and you wouldn't have to have the interaction with a bunch of servers, which is brilliant but a, a pretty big problem that needed to be solved. So I can't throw all these pieces perfectly in that thin by hand. So there's a different process called slip casting where you make a plaster mold and you pour liquid clay into the plaster mold. The plaster absorbs a little bit of the water from the outside. You pour that clay out and you have a shell of whatever that shape of the mold is. So you put it in for about 10 minutes, you pour it out, you let it dry, you pop it out of the mold and you have this perfectly replicable, nice, clean, straight-edged piece. But that requires making the original, then you have to make a plaster mold of that original, then you have to make a silicone master of that plaster mold, and then from that silicone master, you can make 15 different plaster molds that you can then pour the slip into. So it's five different steps before you, you can even start making the piece and it's nine different pieces and I had never done this before so I didn't have the plaster I didn't have the clay the slip I didn't know who had it so I didn't have the silicone so I found a place in the city where I could get the silicones we drive down there there's a place in Sheffield Mass which is two hours in the opposite direction where I could get the slip which I'd never used before. I, they're a reputable company, but I don't know how it's gonna perform with my glazes, if my glaze is gonna fit, if it's gonna crack, if it's gonna slump or warp. So we get everything in house. My, I also have no team left. There's nobody in here working. I had one girl who was able to come back, who we you know, figured out a system where we could come in and be separated. Luckily, I had um, Kelsey, who's actually a former line cook, who came to work for me. So she has that mindset of, all right, what do we got to do? Like, I'll come in, I'll work late nights, I'll, I'll bust my ass. So it's Kelsey and I figuring out how the hell to make all these pieces and going through this process of making molds, we have to make new tools to make these molds and you have to, it's just constant, constant problem solving. So from the order, fast forward, I guess, 12 days, so two days before the order is due, got 
somehow miraculously we get these pieces made. They fit, they're clean, they work. They just need to be fired. And because I had figured out that I could skip the first firing process and just go straight to glazing the pieces, I thought I, I was good. I had two days overnight, I guess a day and a half. So it's 3 a.m. in the studio and I start glazing the pieces like I normally glaze the pieces. And because these pieces are so paper thin and I'd never done it before, they start disintegrating in my hand. So the, the, the piece just falls apart. It gets real soft and like kind of wobbly, wobbly. and then just cracks and falls apart. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> freaking the fuck out and uh, trying to figure out what, what to do. So I have to do something, I can't glaze them they need to go through the first firing that you call the bisque firing that kind of hardens the clay and it makes it ready for glaze. So I load up the whole kiln, close it, turn it on. I sit back down at the wheel. It's now 6.30 in the morning and sun's coming up. I sit down at the wheel to keep making more pieces because this is not the whole order. It's not the end of it. I've got to keep going. So I'm sitting there trying to think in my head what to tell Philippe and Dan that I, I don't have these pieces. So, mind you, I'm on three hours of sleep every other night, so I'm exhausted. My mind's not working straight, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, all right, let me wait until he's at least up and out of bed before I email him. And I see a car pull into the garage, and it's Philippe. Seven in the morning. <laughs> He's up bright and early, ready to go, ready, ready to take on the world. <laughs> he comes in here. Yeah. So he comes in here because we've got Natalia making menus of handmade paper for him. And he's trying to talk with Matt about making some sort of device out of metal. And he's talking to Carlos about wood. So, you know, it's like Disneyland for him. It's great. He gets to come in. Everything's one-stop shop, local. And he walks <laughs> over to me, you know, somewhat jovial. Um, you know, how, how are we doing? How's the order coming? And I look up at him with what must have been just these dead, distraught eyes. And I was like, Philippe, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. I was like, this happened. I explained it to him. I said, I've got him in the kiln. I'm going to take him out. I'm going to glaze him and get him right back into the kiln. But I'll have nothing for you on Wednesday. I'll have stuff Thursday. And Wednesday was their VIPs. It's, you know, so they had to cancel service on Wednesday. And I, you know, I just, I just canceled service for one of the best restaurants in the world. I, you know, I'm just hating my, it's just, I'm like, what, an, what sort of idiot would think that I could do this? <laughs> like, it's so right. stupid that I would. But he's not freaking out on you. Like no, no. I mean, he's, he's, upset, I think the same maybe. way that all of them do thinking, okay, what's my next step? How do I solve this problem? That's right. That's why they survive. Yes. So he's like, all right. We'll figure it out. I work for a few more hours. I go home at noon to take a nap. I slept until two. I wake up to a uh, missed phone call. Two missed phone calls and a text. And same number. And it says, hey, Connor, this is Dan Barber. I need to talk to you. Please call me. And to, like, wake up still, you know, I had not rested. To wake up and look no, at my phone. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to cry and throw up and die. 
So, um, you know, I, I get up, I like catch my breath, I get a cup of coffee, I drive to the studio and I call him. Just, you know, I don't know what the hell to tell him. And uh, he goes, hey buddy, how you doing? Like, I've been better, Dan, I've been better. He's like, I heard you're having a little bit of a tough time. I was like, yeah, you could say that. He's like, listen, Philippe told me, we're gonna figure it out. He's like, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. We can, we can make something work. You'll have stuff for me tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah, chef, I'll have them for you on, on Thursday. He's like, great. Also, send me pictures of, of the pieces that fell apart. Send me pictures of the fuck ups. He's like, I wanna tell the story. It's like, we've been working with you for years now. And, you know, there's this amazing craftsman who works down the street who busts his ass and makes all these pieces for us. Like, I want to tell that story. It's great. Just, you know, send them over. I want to get you some business. The lengths that that entire team went to figure it out, despite not having the plates that ended up being a crucial step to this. So I've got a little bit of relief. I get everything glazed. I get it into the kiln. I'm like, all right. We're gonna, well, gonna get through this. Like a couple of days? A little bit. Oh, no, just wait. So <laughs> <laughs> the relief was very short-lived because I get the kiln loaded up, should be up to temperature um, early in the morning and I can turn it off, crash cool it, get the pieces out, have it to them for service on Thursday. 3 a.m., I look at the kiln, it's stalled. It's not, it's not going up in temperature. It's at like 1,700 degrees and that needs to get to 23, 2,400 degrees. Uh, kiln just shit the bed. It died. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, do I just wait in the morning and see what happens? Do I? And I, so I just sent him a message. I was like, I got to just give you all the information that I can give you so that you can deal with it. So I told him, Hey, I've pushed this kiln, these pieces and myself to the absolute brink. Like it just, it's not possible. I was like, I've got to figure out how to deal with this kiln now, but like Saturday, like I, I'll try to get you stuff Saturday. But I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't have a kiln. I, I don't even know if these pieces are going to come out right. I'm still, still haven't tested this clay body with this glaze and these pieces. So luckily we were able to figure out a situation with another kiln with the new kiln that I got hooked up and we were able to get it hooked up very quickly and uh, unexpectedly. So we were able to get my, my gas kiln hooked up before we thought we were gonna be able to um, and got everything in there. And that was a whole other thing, but uh, we got the kiln hooked up, we got it turned on and miraculously, it was the first time I'd fired that kiln, the big gas kiln. So I'd fired those kilns before at a different studio and each, they tell you like, we can't give you a program to fire it. It's each one is kind of its own thing based on the airflow and the pressure and how you load it. And so when we fired it the first time at the other studio, when they got their kiln, it took us five times to get it right. So now I've got a kiln load of pieces that it's a brand new clay. It's a brand new form. I don't, it's a brand new kiln. I don't even know if I can be able to fire it, get a temperature. Anyway, long story, still very long as I've been talking forever now. Uh, we got them, we got them out of there and got it finished. And, you know, 
a lot of little tweaks that we still had to make to the design and the, the way that we made them to get the lids to fit right and everything. But um, yeah, we got, we got them all. How all many done. days late from the original? Three, four. I mean, that should be a six month project. <laughs> like slip cat, that's what certain businesses do. Like they do slip casting. That's right. a that's a full business. Right. I could take those pieces and just put different glazes on them and create an entire website and that's a full line of of pieces and production process and tools. What was the biggest takeaway? What's the thing that you take away from that whole thing that drives you forward? Oh don't don't fucking take on an order like that again. <laughs> I don't no, believe that. No. Um, <laughs> No, that's that's it's it it will end up being the equivalent of like me procrastinating on doing a paper in college until the night before and then you do it and you haven't slept and you end up getting like an A minus and it's like, oh I can do this again now, which is stupid because it'd be better if you've got if you got an F and it would teach you not to be an idiot and wait to the last minute. But you didn't wait to the last minute on this. No, but it would You had no this, choice. This if this fully failed, it would teach me to, to not take on orders that are way above what I can do. But I kind of made it work. Anyway, I, I guess the, the biggest takeaway, I guess just that, that definition of impossible, of what you think you can do, and the ability to work under pressure, and, uh, and maybe not even just the ability to work under pressure, but the, the value of working under pressure. You know, I'd, I'd started a lighting project doing slip casting, a similar project, been slowly working on over the past year and a half. And I've gotten, I got maybe 5% of the way, you know, there's no orders for it, there's no demand. So it's kind of the, if there's a sense of urgency that's forcing me to do something, then I can adapt and create. I have all sorts of new tools and things in here that I've fully built from the ground up now, um, slip casting tables and spray booths with fans and filters and all sorts of things that are out of necessity for this order, which honestly has been from the beginning kind of the, the method of growth for all of this. And I think one of the biggest things that I see value in, in terms of working with chefs and restaurants is that to start a business like this making handmade ceramics, one way of doing it is to say, okay, I'm gonna design these pieces and this is what I have, this is what I have to offer, do you want it or not? But the way that I've designed it rather than going straight to individuals to market and saying these are my pieces and here's my menu, choose from it, it's been, let me sit down with a chef and what do you think we should do? And how do we collaborate to make and design uh, a piece or a set of pieces that specifically and uniquely fits your restaurant and your needs. And most of the time it's, you know, they'll say, hey, can you do this? And I'll say, no, that's not, it's not how that works, that's impossible. But now that you say that, maybe we could do something close to it. And we kind of do this back and forth and come up with an idea that is, way different than either of us individually would have thought of and certainly not something that I would think of completely on my own and it really is this like true collaboration this collaborative relationship where you end up with I mean if we look to the side here this entire set of shelves that are next to us is just filled with 
a couple hundred different designs. Um, most of them probably failed attempts at, at a design, but it's, it's all out of efforts to create something to specifically match a restaurant and an idea in a chef's head. Um, that I, I, most of them I would never think of on my own. I mean, a lot of these, yes, I've, I've have my own style of pieces, especially the pieces that I have like on doorstep market and on my website, but, um, working with individuals, especially chefs who have such vision and high expectations, um, and creativity to be able to kind of tap into that and utilize that as as a force to uh, i guess like a force for creativity is great thank you for joining me this week on the makers brought to you by trade and prosper if you enjoy the show follow me on itunes and listen in next week when i chat with matt yazel of yazel knives a classically trained american bladesmith finding his true passion after 20 years of restaurant and hospitality experience